We are living in a time of pandemic, and um, in a lot of ways, I feel like the pandemic is a kind of uh, internal exile because we're cut off from the people that we're normally engaged with. And we know that during times of exile, we're, we're not cut off from God, but a lot of times we're cut off from the community of God, and so much of our relationship with God happens in community. So I'm grateful for those who are able to gather here in the sanctuary. I'm grateful for those uh, in the exile community who gather online uh, as well. I think it's important for us to cultivate as much community uh, to be intentional about it. I think maybe we've taken it for granted in the past. We could always get together uh, with our friends, with fellow believers. And now every time we get together, it's like a conscious decision. Some people are making conscious decisions, you know, they're calculating the health risk of what they're doing. Um, some of our uh, congregation have been infected and are quarantining at home. Uh, there is one member of our band who was exposed this past week. We're hoping that she's not infected. It's real and it's in our midst. Uh, you've heard the announcement uh, from Montgomery County that our schools are going to be closing for uh, two weeks uh, around uh, Thanksgiving time. Uh, and so here at Valley Christian School, we've been really uh, enjoying being open and seeing each other. And there's so much of education that happens in a hands-on, in-person kind of way. So we're going to hunker down again, and we're going to do the best that we can uh, by doing it online. And we're going to pray uh, for relief from this pandemic, from this internal exile that, that all of us are facing. We're going to do the best that we can with the circumstances uh, that we have. Um, God is our God in this time of pandemic. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, from a supernatural point of view, uh, we have this affliction. I pray that God remove it quickly. Um, and I just pray that we would continue to draw closer to God and closer to one another during this time. Our second reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles. I'm going to do something that I very rarely do. Uh, you know, we preach through whole books of the Bible at a time. I'm actually going to skip a chunk Okay, so we're going to be reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 4a, and then jumping forward to verse 18. The chunk that I'm jump, jumping over, you can go home and read it. But you've already read it twice earlier because it's a repeat of what we've seen earlier in the Acts of the Apostles, which is why I'm jumping over it this morning. But hear the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has, re has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, 
preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great number of people In Antioch, the disciples first were called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we call on your name this day, and we thank you for your word, for this testimony of your working in the church uh, during the early days. We pray this morning as we uh, look at your word that we might hear a word from you and that we might be changed because of that word. Uh, We pray that you would have your way with us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of this sermon is Called by Name, to call on His name, to be called by His name. It's not a very catchy title. It may be a little long for some people. But the whole sermon is contained in that one convoluted sentence. And if you wrap your mind around the title of this sermon, then you've done your work for the day and you can relax and go home. Called by name, called to call on His name, to be called by His name. Last week we were looking at the story of Peter preaching to Cornelius and the household of Cornelius. It's the longest story in the Acts of the Apostles. It runs 66 verses. It begins with two visions. Peter has a vision uh, where he's staying of the sheet coming down out of heaven and God saying that all things are clean. And then at the same time, Cornelius receiving a vision, an angel saying, go and find this man that you've never met before called Simon Peter. The result of these two visions is these two men come together in a divine appointment and we have the first mass conversion of Gentiles. And news of the conversion gets back to Jerusalem and not everyone's pleased. The brothers in Jerusalem are mm, not so happy that Peter went and talked to the uncircumcised. I mean, after all, Jesus is for the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. Why expose this to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles? And not only did you preach the gospel to them, you also ate with them and became ceremonially unclean. Peter goes back to Jerusalem. It seems like he was summoned back to the mother church to give an account of what had happened at Cornelius' house. He gives a justification... 
of what he had done there. That's what we see in Acts chapter 11 verses 1 through uh, 18. This is Peter's defense before the council there in Jerusalem. It involves retelling the story that you've already heard uh, a couple of times. And so I just jumped over that part. But the payoff is in verse 18 where we hear the good news. When they heard... These things, all of Peter's explanation of what had happened, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay? So that's the end, that's the capstone of the story of Peter and Cornelius, the story of the first mass conversion of Gentiles. And that brings us to a new story which begins at verse 19. And we have a change of scenery. And we have a change of characters. We move from Peter in Caesarea and now we're dealing with Barnabas in Antioch. There's also a shift in time here. Uh, we're not 100% clear about the timeline of the life of Paul, but this could be as late as three years after the conversion of Paul. The shift is abrupt. It's hardly announced uh, in, this, in, in the passage there. But the narrator uh, ties this new story about what's going on in Antioch. He ties it way back to the story that he tells in chapter 7 of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that, that breaks out. In verse 19 we read, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. That's the coastline. Uh, there in Israel. And Cyprus, that's an island out there in the Mediterranean off the coast of Turkey. And Antioch, which is on the coast of Turkey, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, So the persecution has sent these people out from Judea. They've scattered a great distance. Uh, from Jerusalem to Antioch is uh, more than 400 miles how far is 400 miles? Well, if you were to walk eight hours a day, it would take you two weeks to walk from Jerusalem to Antioch, okay? So it's a distance that, that the church has moved out over the course of time, probably over the course of years. At first, all of the believers in this growing, expanding church, all of the believers are Jewish, with a couple of exceptions, you remember, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch, he's a God-fearer, okay, so he worships Yahweh, but he's probably not Jewish. And then there, of course, is the story of Cornelius the centurion, another God-fearer, but an uncircumcised man. These are the rare exceptions. The church in this period is a Jewish body. For the first few years, the church is almost entirely Jewish. Uh, because when the Jews moved into new areas, they would share the news of Jesus with the Jews that they met in the new neighborhood. Now naturally, they are uh, associating with Jewish people to begin with, like attracts like, and so they would share the news of Jesus with uh, the, uh, the Jews in their neighborhood, and they would be disinclined to speak to the Gentiles about it, because, well, the Messiah is Jewish, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. He's the one who answers the prophecies of the Old Testament. Judaism is about the Jews. It's not about the Gentiles. So it's no wonder that the church remains Jewish. 
The spread of the gospel, though, is going on. And the gospel is spreading not through missionaries, but just through ordinary people migrating from place to place and bringing their faith along with them. Once in the new place, they share that faith with other members of their people group. Something, however, different is going on in Antioch. Which is why I think the narrator of the Acts of the Apostles lifts up this story. Keep in mind, the Acts of the Apostles doesn't tell us everything that happened. Okay, The the narrator is selecting important stories. And the story of what's going on in Antioch is important. Antioch at this time is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So Rome is the largest Uh, That's in Italy. And then Alexandria is the second largest. That's in Egypt. And then we have Antioch at, at maybe a half a million people. That's huge. Half a million people living there, uh, on the coast, uh, of Turkey. Um, and so the people, uh, the Jewish people who have come to Antioch have come from Cyprus and Cyrene, we're told. So already the Jews who are in Antioch are Jews who are already uh, at one remove from the from life in Judea. They're Jews who are already part of an earlier diaspora. Cyrene is in North Africa. Cyprus, of course, is an island there in the Mediterranean. And so some people from there go on to Antioch. And apparently at Antioch, for the first time, these Jewish people begin to preach to non-Jews. Hellenist is how it's put in the ESV translation uh, to the Greeks is how it's going to appear in the King James uh, Version. And what we're told is, is that a very large number of these came to Christ. A very large number of non-Jewish people started believing in Jesus. Now keep in mind, again, we're not, we're not talking about missionaries yet. Okay, we're still just talking about regular people who've moved to a new place, who've brought their faith with them, but now something has changed because now I'm willing to talk to people outside of my people group. These Jews who have migrated to Antioch are more open to surrounding cultures, and so the church begins to expand outside of the boundaries of the Jewish community, and word gets back to Jerusalem. Again, the mother church is a little concerned about what's going on. And so they send Barnabas. They send Barnabas to check up on what's going on in Antioch. Now Barnabas himself uh, is from Cyprus. Okay, So he's already, in some sense, the same kind of Jew that's migrated up to Antioch. We met Barnabas way back in Acts chapter 4. This was uh, in that chapter where they're talking about uh, all of the disciples holding everything in common and people were selling property and giving the money to the apostles uh, uh, for the common purse. In Acts four thirty six, we read, Joseph, who was also called by the apostle, apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so that's Barnabas. We've already met him. He's a Levite, so he's from the priestly class. 
he's living abroad. He's clearly uh, a co- a committed to this new movement. He's given up his property. He's uh, put it in uh, with the church there um, in Jerusalem. He's living in Jerusalem. And now Barnabas is sent by the church in Jerusalem to check out what's going on uh, in Antioch. And what he sees there makes him happy. He sees that God has blessed these believers and he encourages them, he preaches to them to be faithful to the Lord and to serve the Lord with their whole heart. Interestingly, Barnabas then calls in some reinforcements. There's a baby church here. And it's starting to grow, but... Let's bring in some more horsepower so this thing will really grow. And so Barnabas fetches Saul, who's living in Tarsus. Now you remember Saul, he's still called Saul here, by the way. Notice he's not yet Paul. We met Saul, uh, the last time we heard from Saul was back in Acts chapter 9. Um, at that point he's been converted. He's gone down to Jerusalem. Uh, he wants to join with the disciples. Everyone's scared of him. They don't, you know, they don't trust him. Barnabas is the only one who takes Saul under his wings. Um, and Saul and Barnabas begin to preach in Jerusalem. And then there is a plot to kill Saul. Jews want to kill Saul. And so the church, uh, takes Saul and sends him to Tarsus. Okay, they, they ship him out. Now they send him to Tarsus because he's from Tarsus. So he's just basically sending him, sending him back home. So that's what we read, uh, some, some weeks ago in Acts chapter 9. So now it's time to bring Paul, Saul back into the story. And Saul and Barnabas then spend one full year together there in Antioch, teaching in the church every time it meets, is what it says. Teaching in the church every time it meets. Okay. And then there's this beautiful sentence in here. And it is in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Before this word Christian emerged to describe the followers of Jesus, the followers of Jesus were typically called people in the way or people of the way. But at Antioch, they're called Christians. They're not called, they don't call themselves Christians. They're called by the other people Christians. The word Christian, Christianos, comes from the Greek word for Messiah, Christos. And so outsiders, non-believers in Antioch are calling the disciples of Jesus by the name of Jesus. They know that Jesus is called Christos. Okay, so we're going to call these people who are so crazy about Christos, Christianos. Outsiders, non-believers are calling them by the name of the man that they worship. What an honor. What an honor to have the world recognize who it is that you're following and give you a name of the man that you're following. It's a mark of distinction to have that applied to you. Now many of us here this morning call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves Christians because we have been marked as followers of Christ. But I want you to think about what's implied in that title. The honor 
that's implied in that title. That you get to bear the name of the Savior of the universe. That's a title that you get to own for yourself. Think about how satisfying that must have been for those Christians at Antioch to have that applied to them by non-believers on the outside. The title of this sermon is Called by Name to Call on His Name to be called by His name. And so we've landed in that last part of that title, to be called by Jesus' name. The followers of Jesus in Antioch were called by His name, by other people. They didn't call themselves that name. They were called this by other people. Called by the name of Jesus. So, so now I want to back up and I want to talk about how we get there. Called by name is how it starts... It all begins when God calls our name. God's call is not a generic call. It's not a cattle call. God's call is always personal. It's always directed at at an individual. God calls us by name. In our call to worship this morning, we had words of comfort that were spoken to Israel while Israel was in exile, not not pandemic exile, but exile in Babylon. And we heard these words. This is Isaiah 43, 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Think of the confidence and the assurance that it gives to those people living in exile, living in a foreign country, living in extreme circumstance, think of the confidence and the assurance that it gives them to know that God has called them by name. When God calls our name, it is not a generic call. It is always personal. Jesus called Saul individually, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? God calls Cornelius by name. Angel shows up. Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. When God calls us, He calls us by name. Secondly, when God calls us by name, He calls us To call on His name. God calls us so that we might call back. Call in response. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, to call on the name of the Lord means to recognize that God is God and you're not God, for one. It means to recognize that God can help you and that you need some help. When you call on the name of the Lord, we recognize who we are. Broken, needy, dependent creatures. And we recognize who God is. Perfectly whole, fully powerful, independent creator. When we call on the name of the Lord, we recognize who we are and who God is. And we understand that relationship. Not all people call on the name of the Lord. The first people to call on the name of the Lord we read about in Genesis chapter 4. They're the grandchildren of Adam and Eve. We read in 4.26, Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Okay, So that was when it began, when people began to call on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is recognizing our need, and it's recognizing God's ability to help. 
Look, there are a lot of people who recognize that they have a need, but don't recognize that there's someone out there who can help them. A lot of people are crying out for help, but they don't know who's able to help them. Calling on the name of the Lord is recognizing our need and recognizing that God can help us out in this situation. It's a recognition that God is the creator and that we are his beloved creatures. To call on the name of the Lord then becomes a description of God's people in general. It's a description of the church. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 2, writes this way. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place Call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. To call on the name of the Lord, in some sense, is a description of the person who is a member of the people of God. And the payoff, of course, is that calling on the name of the Lord is the pathway to salvation, which is our ultimate need. You know, a lot of people come to the church for things that are less important than salvation. They come to the church because they're needy, because they're lonely, uh, because they're lonesome, because they're broken. They need community, they need fellowship, they need support. But what we all need most foundationally is to be in a restored relationship with Almighty God. We call that salvation. And while it's important for the church to provide all sorts of benefits to the community, we have to remember that our primary calling is to call people to salvation. All right. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is what Paul writes in Romans 10, 13. And by the way, Paul there is just quoting Joel, the prophet Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God calls us by name so that we will call on His name with the result that we will be called by His name. That we will bear His name. The followers of Jesus were first called Christians of Antioch. This wonderful distinction. God has always envisioned having a set-aside people for Himself, a holy people who are called by His name. In Deuteronomy 28.10, God says to the Israelites, He says, And all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. There go those crazy Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, in the promised land. And the other nations say, oh, there go the Yahweh people. They were called by His name. And bearing that name, bearing that divine mark, is a sign of God's protection and God's favor. God reassures His people during time of exile, fear not, I am with you, everyone who is called by my name. Now, we are called by God's name in order to do work for God. We have a special role to play. We are a peculiar people, as the King James Version has it. Really, I want someone to name a church, the peculiar church. 
It's very biblical. Okay. The peculiar church. We have some peculiar people in this congregation. Here's how Peter talks about the church in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We've been called by name. We've been called by name so that we might call on God's name. So that we might call on God's name. So that we might be called by His name. So that we might sing His praises as the one who's called us out of darkness and into light. So where are you? Have you heard God's personal call? Have you heard Him call you by name? And if you've heard Him call you by name, and let let me be clear about this. There are a lot of people who have a generic understanding of God. They believe things about God. But they haven't heard God's call by name. One of the testimonies that I love to hear in this church, when when we have new members come into this church, uh, we share our testimonies of faith on the session. And uh, one of our elders uh, grew up in the church always believed that there is a God and that Jesus is the Son of God. But he identifies the moment of transformation for him was during a communion service here at this church when it became clear to him in that moment, in that service, that Jesus died for him. Not generically for the world, but for us individually. Have you heard God call your name? And if you've heard Him call your name, have you responded? Not everybody who's heard the call has said, Yes, Lord, here I come. Some of us have panicked and run the other way. Have you heard your name called and then cried out to God, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise. It's 100%. Totally effective. And those of you who have been saved, my prayer for you this morning is is that you are moving in the confidence, even in this time of exile, that comes from knowing that God's name and mark and seal are on you. God knows your name. He's got a plan for your life and a purpose for what you're doing here. And this pandemic is not going to get in the way of that. His plan is larger than the circumstances of this life. And I want you to move in confidence knowing that God's name is on you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. Even in the worst of circumstances, even in exile, in a foreign and hostile country, God says to his people, fear not, I am with you. Everyone who's called by my name. It's a blessed assurance. So let us close now with a time of prayer. And I'm just going to invite you to... Spend some time listening 
for God's voice this morning. And if you've never called on the name of the Lord, I want you to call on His name this morning. And if you have called on the Lord's name in the past, but are moving around in anxiety and in fear, I'm going to ask that you would rest in the assurance that the Lord is with you, even in this time and this place. So let us call on the name of the Lord. Lord God, we do call on your name. Because your name is above all names. And at your name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Lord Jesus, we have heard your voice calling our names. Sometimes that call has come in loud peals of thunder and sometimes it's been quiet. But we've heard you call our name. Give us now the faith to respond and to call out to you. Lord God, you are God and we are not and we are lost without you. Lord God, you are the creator and we are the creature. We're beautifully made in your image and yet without you, we have no hope. So hear us today as we call on you. Have mercy on us. Save us. Be our Savior. Don't only be our Creator, be our Savior too. And Lord Jesus, as we walk in this land of exile, in a world that is hostile to you, hostile to your kingdom, We pray that we would move without anxiety. That we would move in great beauty and grace and comfort and security knowing that we are sons and daughters of the Most High. That Lord Jesus is our brother. Lord, I pray that as we feel your mark upon us, That that would enable us to be the kind of people that you want us to be in this world. There's so much work to be done. There are so many people to take care of. There are so many people to love. There are so many people to speak to. And we pray that you would work through us to accomplish your purposes for your world. Lord, may your kingdom come. Father God, we love you and adore you. Lord Jesus, we bless you for being our merciful high priest. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your abiding presence and for your comfort. We worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.